May I introduce our speakers? Susie Orbach is a psychotherapist, writer, campaigner, and social critic. She is the author of the best-selling Fat is a Feminist Issue, a visiting professor at the London School of Economics, and has been a consultant for the World Bank, the NHS, and Unilever, and was the co-originator of the Dove Campaign for Real Beauty. Her columns in The Guardian on emotions in public and private life have been collected into two volumes. Her latest book, called Bodies, has been called A Rousing Polemic on the Western Obsession with Physical Perfection. She wasn't the right person to tell as she arrived this evening that I'm on a diet. Mark Oakley is Canon Treasurer of St. Paul's Cathedral and is Deputy Priest in Ordinary to Her Majesty the Queen. He used to be the Archdeacon of Germany and Northern Europe and Rector of the Actors Church, St. Paul's Covent Garden. He's a regular broadcaster, reviews for the tablets, the Church Times, and his books include The Collage of God and John Donne, Verse and Prose. A recent article in the Church Times arguing for the renewal of theological generosity in the Anglican spirit was entitled, An Issue, An Issue, We All Fall Down. He's the new boy here at St. Paul's, Mark Oakley and Susie Oybach. Susie. Thank you, and good evening. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm supposed to speak about happiness, but I think I need to declare from the outset that psychoanalysts are the spoil sports at the party. People come to us in the hope of transforming bleakness when lives gone wrong, lives incomprehensible, lives in which apparently destructive behaviors thwart longings cannot be understood by talking to friends or spiritual leaders. People come hoping for relief, for the lifting of confusion, of sorrow, of muddle, of rage and despair. In a first therapy consultation, what provides for relief is often not the dissolving of confusion, sorrow, muddle, rage and despair, but the recognition of its legitimacy. The therapist endeavors to help the patient find words that speak of his or her experience, and in so doing, conveys the sense that emotional distress can be borne and not trivialized. It can be understood in its individual and unique way for that person. As Tolstoy wrote in the first line of Anna Karenina, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. But why talk about unhappiness when the topic is happiness? Why in this vast subject, with all of its possibilities, focus on its apparent antithesis? When I'm in New York, which I am often, 
buying a coffee or a pair of shoes or a toy. The sales assistant inevitably says, have a great day. Or of late, looks at me meaningfully and says, have a really great day. Call me British. Call me curmudgeonly. Call me a Jew with that cultural tick of seeing trouble as much as joy. Call me a shrink. However you wish to label me, it doesn't take away from the fact that I feel desperately put upon and put out. The exhortation to have a really great day does not match my desire, let alone my mood. Unless it does, in which case I'm, I'll say I am. But usually I find myself replying, can't I just have an okay day? Or an interesting day? Or the day that I'm having? The sales assistant is thrown. And I'm thrown by her or his being thrown. I've dared to interrupt, interrupt the mantra of have a good time that is the accompaniment to late capitalism. I've barged in with something that doesn't fit, that is less than pretty, that doesn't suit the story of not the pursuit of happiness, but the right to happiness every day, all day, when I'm simply buying a coffee. I'm not sure when we went from the greeting, good day, to have a great day. I certainly remember being told by strangers to cheer up or keep my chin up. I remember my son being told at two, smile for mummy, don't make her unhappy when being left at nursery school. When what he was feeling was a momentary prickle of separation. He would have done so much better if the kind teacher had simply said, it can be very sad to say goodbye. His emotional reality acknowledged, not subverted into smiling for me, he could then go off to play with the other children. But late capitalism's ideology, sorry, but late capitalism's ideological fig leaf is happiness. As Barbara Ehrenreich has so ably argued, the smile culture and positive thinking has become the accompaniment to every social and individual calamity. Undef understandable distress is turned into a peak experience opportunity. Be made redundant, find you have cancer, lose your son in Afghanistan, be unexpectedly left in a relationship. Tragedy strikes. These events are life-changing. They're usually unwelcome. But something to smile about? I don't think so. Insofar as we have slumbered under a cloak of synthetic happiness as a way to live, they can be a wake-up call. But the anger, fury, distress, or sense of abandonment that such a situation evokes should not be denied. The feelings they engender are part of what it makes possible of what, it makes, of what makes it possible to survive the loss. 
An authentically positive attitude arises out of assimilating the range of difficult and painful feelings that such events produce. Unhappiness, reflection, grief, confusion, distress have become cordoned off to the problem pages, the counselor or priest's office, and lastly to the pharmaceutical companies as a new disease entity. Shy? There's a medicalized treatment for social phobia. Low libido? Try Viagra. For despair, try Prozac. For depression, try Lustral. For unfocused energy, Ritalin. With the separation of difficulty from ordinary social intercourse, we become afraid of non-happy feelings, as though they were polluting, rather than an aspect of life that, if we can but experience, allows us to digest and move on. Late capitalism is offering us a radically different vision in which to be human. It's about consuming as a means to happiness. The notion is sold across the world to all age groups and with renewed ferocity to the new economies of Brazil, Russia, India, and China. In place of making a contribution of a community, of a purpose, and a life lived with others, with all its ups and downs, Individual attainment, including the acquisition of goods, fame and wealth, have become the aspirations and markers of happiness for our time. Aspirations are wonderful and engaging, but aspiration is not the same as fulfillment. It's the how, why and what of our engagement and the process of involvement that's crucial. Attainment is good and it's important and satisfying to achieve what one set out to do. But if aspiration is all, then arriving risks feelings of emptiness. Many of today's aspirations for young people are for recognition. They want to be seen, to find a place, to know that they're valued. Fair enough. Sadly, the means to value have been represented in ways to do with the purchase of brands, of perfected bodies, with celebrity, with money. This method for recognition can be thought of as the manufacture of misery and self-hatred in the name of the happiness deity. Much profit is made on the basis of arousing discontent and we need to challenge it. Exploitation, false gods, should never go with impunity. They should be exposed and contested. I don't want to be a pain junkie, but I do want to argue that any sustainable an authentic view of happiness emerges out of our capacity to embrace the smorgasbord of emotions from the grand emotions of love, hate, grief, jealousy, bliss and anger, joy, to the more subtle and equally valuable states of disappointment, contentment, restlessness, boredom, ennui, longing, poignancy, hurt, frustration, tenderness, and so on. The English language has a great many words for our psychological states. No wonder. We need them all at different times. When we find the right way to express what we feel, 
even if it's disconsolate. We're in the process of something rich, and I believe part of what makes it possible to be fulfilled, to be happy. Superimposing positive emotions, as the happiness movement does, on the more difficult ones, doesn't help us reach the places we need to go. Happiness comes from acknowledging how we feel and being understood, or if not exactly understood and matched in mood, being somewhere on the way to being understood and recognized. Happiness is the result of being able to be with multiple feelings that emerge through the many perplexing situations that we encounter. Yes, we need schmaltz some of the time, but not much. The great symphonies, some of which I've heard in this very glorious place. The blues, the quiet sonata, the individual song of delight, the world musical repertoire speak gloriously to the emotional timbre of our lives. Happiness, it strikes me, is the mosaic of human experience that has been and is allowed to be felt. Thank you. It may be slightly surprising to have a member of the clergy speaking to you on happiness. Clergy are not always known for their joy. One priest in this diocese of London is known for his motto in life, start each day with a smile, get it over with. <laughs> and many other clergy taken to washing their dirty surpluses in public are constantly in the press airing their fears, anxieties and anger. Not much happiness. <clears throat> Consequently, when one particularly grim bishop was recently spotted smiling in a synod meeting, I was told no, he wasn't smiling. It was probably a bit of wind. <laughs> Should this surprise us? When did you last see a picture of Jesus laughing or even smiling? In fact, if I showed you a picture of Jesus having a good old belly laugh, and I only know of one, it may even appear a little blasphemous or dislocating. Christianity often presents itself very seriously, and that can be interpreted as it being something of a party pooper. This then leads those clergy who feel imprisoned by this impression to behave in an often unholier-than-thou, almost cabaret manner in an attempt to humanize their profession. I suppose that's what I've been doing myself for the last couple of minutes. But when did laughter have anything to do with happiness, I hear you ask? Laughter can be the social camouflage of a very sad soul. The laughter mask is one some of us quickly reach for when things are too raw or exposed. It feels very contrived to equate laughter with happiness. The question is, as we're exploring tonight, just with what can we equate this word happiness? I have to come clean from the start too. It's a word I dislike. 
Is it because it just sounds too sugary and contaminated by self-help gurus or little yellow faces sent annoyingly in texts? In a world too knowing, too sophisticated, too ironical, too post-everything to take it very seriously? No, not quite. For beyond any sniggering, there is that restlessness that still yearns for the experience of contentment I think it's trying to define. That state of emotional balance we are in when we're not unhappy. And other terms for happiness are equally off-putting. Subjective well-being, or SWB, is awful. So are positive emotionality and hedonic tone. And wellness sounds like a coastal town in Norfolk. <laughs> My dislike of the word happiness is more probably due to the fact that implying it's a permanent state you can reach if you try, the word just sits there rather smugly saying, here I am, others have found me, why can't you? When really I think it's playing a very different game with us. This word happiness is a flirt, winking at us to follow and then leaving us stranded on the chase. And dumped as we are, we wonder who else is enjoying the experience instead of us and what did they do that we didn't. The United States Declaration of Independence talks of the pursuit of happiness. Happiness is always, as it were, on the pull, but when you go to the bar to buy it a drink, you return to find it gone, never fully known, never properly kissed. So the pursuit of happiness for itself might be the cause of unhappiness. No wonder we start pursuing happiness's many surrogates. This, I think, is all true if you treat happiness as an end in itself and not something that can be enjoyed periodically whilst pursuing other ends. And what those ends should be is a course of matter of debate. The Latin word for happy, Felix, also meant lucky. But going further back, Felix came from the Greek word for fertile. So in years past, if you and your land were fertile, then you were lucky and consequently happy. And that link between luck and happiness, rather fatalistic, can be seen in other languages as well. Das Glück in German, or even in English, the old word hap, from which we get the word happy. Well, hap means luck, hence hapless, haphazard. Happiness and luck are still bedfellows in the way we think, just watch the national lottery tomorrow night. The Greeks pulled the two apart. Happiness then becomes something that, rather than being capricious, can be pursued. Plato argues for happiness being the fulfillment of our deepest desires, disciplined by contemplation of the good and the beautiful. Aristotle argued that happiness is a process found in living virtuously, in balance. 
Virtues for him are those dispositions between excess and deficiency. So to eat is good, gluttony is excess, starvation is deficiency. To eat virtuously will mean a balance between them. And what would later be termed sins are usually good things that have been taken to excess. It's good to have self-esteem. Vanity becomes the sin, and so on. And you can see how Plato and Aristotle both shaped a Christian understanding of happiness as that discovered joy of contemplation and the delight of virtue. Now that sounds just a little pious, until you think that it's not unlikely that on our deathbed we might wish we'd spent more time looking around us and reflecting on the things that matter and taken a bit more care in how we treated people and sought a better balance. So an important question arises, is happiness the equilibrium of head and heart that lifts us out of unhappiness to a general contentment and stability, is it the ultimate good, the supreme state that might be entered if I buy this or look like that? The brave new world of Huxley comes to my mind where unhappiness has been eliminated and the mantra, everybody's happy now, is repeated to the young 150 times a night. Or should happiness be viewed as caught up in a wider process, pleasant but not supreme in our priorities? And is it not so much a disposition to feel good as to try and know or do good? And that's where I become religious. On goes my dog collar. Now I think it's obvious that anyone who's trying to take Christ seriously is going to look with some concern at elements of today's world, the destruction of the environment, the alienation of individuals, the commercialization of culture, all amongst them. What do we actually need in life to live well. I think it's obvious, but perhaps I need to say it anyway, that for the Christian, certain answers around to this question at the moment are just not satisfactory. So, we're living within this dangerous circle of spending money we don't have on things we don't want in order to impress people we don't like. The ads are appealing to our ids. We end up personalizing objects and objectifying people. So in the adverts, you never know if the man is actually having the affair with the woman or with the car. And doubting our worth, we create a culture of entitlement, attention-seeking, litigation. And in this I am seen, therefore I am, culture of fame, where high self-esteem accompanies low self-awareness, injustice and matters of the common good struggle very hard to get in the news. Before long, lives will probably reflect the game shows that cram up our channels, 
a monotonous drone of competition, hype and wannabes, dancing to the tune of bullying judges whose priorities are their own, not yours. To go native to that culture where means very quickly become ends and wants are being confused for needs will, I think I can guarantee tonight, not ever make one happy. Indeed, an integral part of happiness, as Russell said, is to be without some of the things you want. All that's pretty much what you'd expect me to say tonight, and you don't have to be religious to agree with a lot of it. As a PS to this, the psychologist Albert Ellis studied the crippling effects of unrealistic expectations today and summarized them as... I must succeed, everyone must treat me well, and the world must be easy. He defined belief in these three things as masturbation, a rampant and almost universal form of self-abuse. But I want to return to those two words that Christianity inherited from the Greek world, and that have been such an important part of our tradition, especially the monastic one, contemplation and virtue. At the heart of Christianity is a belief that God's gift to us is being, and that our gift to God is becoming. Put another way, God loves us just the way we are, but he loves us so much he doesn't want us to stay like that. So we believe in two conversions, the one that happens when that suddenly seems to make sense and something stirs inside, and the second conversion is that of the rest of one's lifetime, slowly, painfully trying to adjust to a different light, a way of being human not yet tried. And so many religious traditions point us to the idea of the journey, the road, the pilgrimage, for early Christians, the way. And implied there is that life is not about a search for permanent states or high, pleasing experiences, but rather calls us to what we might term spiritual adventure, demanding of us an attention to those inner resources that must deal with change and hurt, the new, the unknown, and so on. Demanding of us also the insight to understand that we need to be schooled in our relationships. I say schooled because today we can think we are in relationship with people when actually what we're doing is assuring ourselves that we're not alone. The man I read of recently who had 541 friends on Facebook, comes to mind. Not one of them knew that he was dead. The complexities of individuals and their circumstances make universal prescriptions, such as what will make you happy, or even what happiness is, impossible. In fact, the demand for such prescriptions is another sign of our impatient times much seduced by the desire for quick clarity. A journey requires much more patience and courage. Wisdom, 
as Eliot knew, has a very different texture to information. And the words come back and haunt me, contemplation, virtue, or reflection, compassion, or observation, balance. Contemplation, being open to discovery, virtue, being open to loving and being loved, and avoiding excess. And in the shadowed world in which we live, where grief is often the price of love, and fairness has to be imposed by politicians because the natural order seems to shun it, the journey of the Christian will not be made towards the happy, the content, or the serene, but made towards the real. That's why we have awe, even fear of God as Christians, not because God's nasty and out to get us, not because God's so transcendent, but because God is real. And my fake constructions recoil at the fact. So psychologists such as Adam Phillips will tell us that the thing about human beings when we talk about our first impressions is that they are not first. Our first impressions arise out of our histories and ingredients. What we see is seen through our brain with all its storage. Our past is taking a deep breath of air in our first impressions, showing us that it's still alive and kicking in case you didn't know. So when you have a first impression of something, it is an insight, but not about what you're looking at. Rather, it's an insight about you. It's a moment of self-revelation. Jane Austen's uh, Pride and Prejudice was originally going to be called First Impressions, and that's exactly the point. Our first impressions are made up of our pride and our prejudices and all that we have trained to disfigure the truth, to sustain our composure. Quite often the first impression uses the past to shield out the present, and so the art of psychoanalysis is to unsettle the first impressions, and because they're self-revealing, they have the potential to be self-revising. So Susie can use the first impressions of her client as a channel into understanding how that person sees the world. Recognition being the first step to a new vision and a life response to it. You might call this, in a different profession, contemplation and virtue. Similarly, the person of faith walking this spiritual adventure with God the real is distrustful of first impressions. And as we journey and have this possibility and potential, this expectancy of seeing afresh, this sense that God is in the world as poetry is in the poem, that for me is beginning to define not a permanent happiness, but a being alive with a mindfulness that asks of me a lot of distillation. This is just not something to do when we're in good spirits. 
It's in the suffering and the grief and the silence that we heard of last week here. It seems to me that everything worthwhile is difficult. The easy answers are not the ones worth having. And as with the psychotherapist, so with the priest, every hard little full stop in life that seems to have brought things to a conclusion or a standstill has the potential to be turned into a comma. More to come, more to learn, another chapter. Now, if Susie's clients can believe that is possible and true, it may not be that different from the person who comes here each week and says, I believe. For they are ways of saying, I sense very deep down that ultimately reality is worthy of my trust. And to reach that expectant, poised place is, I suppose, what I mean, if I have to use the word, by happiness. But it flickers in and out of life. It's not a spotlight I can turn on. Many of you will know the story of the famous atheist Voltaire on his deathbed. The local parish priest visited him and urged him again and again, you must renounce the devil, you must cast out Satan, you must shun the devil and all his works. Oh, it's a bit late to start making enemies, said Voltaire. <laughs> I've already talked about my deathbed. I think last week's forum had an effect. But at the end of my life, I hope I will ask myself, not was I happy or did I search for happiness properly? But did I live well? Did I take time to contemplate this unique little life gifted to me? Did I respond in kind, in some proportion, with kindness? And if I can even begin to think that, well, I tried my best, then I will claim my life and my death to have been happy. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed to both of you. Um, what we're going to do now is we're going to have a conversation for 50 minutes or so um, uh, and I'm going to finish uh, our discussion at 8 o'clock. Um, I noticed that both of you in different ways um, brought in the idea of being recognised. Um, uh, you used the word Susie a number of times, that stuff about recognition, and you had that I, I am seen therefore I am. And I'm very interested in how that's mediated by, um, thank you very much indeed, um, how that's uh, mediated these days by these things. Um, I don't know if you saw that fantastic little thing um, on the Guardian website that Air Spiat did um, about Facebook and being recognised and how it shapes us and changed us. But that stuff about my daughter will sit most of the day and she will be recognized through her computer. What does that do to us? 
I think we could have asked them because I think something very different is going on. And the fact that my children, not now actually, they're a tiny bit older, but would go to a bar, take photos of themselves having a good time, and upload it to friends while it was happening. And the friends would be sitting in another place and constructing photos that they'd be sending back was a very confusing paradigm for me because what was the lack of recognition? What was, the pr what was so desperate about having to be outside of the experience at the same time as, as you were trying to be in it? So there was some notion, I think, for that generation that unless you are seen, unless you are a celebrity in your own life, unless you are bigger than life, unless you can represent yourself in visual culture, you don't exist. But I think it's very Luddite to be hypercritical about this stuff because there's something else going on there too. There is something in terms of communities of interest that make no sense to me but do make sense to other people. I mean, look, I fall in love with people all over the world because I like their work and they write to me and I write back to them. And I don't think that that's a damaging thing. I think I've recognized them, they've recognized me, there's something very lovely there. So we're not that frightened of it there. So the question is why we're so frightened of it when our kids are into it. I know that wasn't what you were asking, but that's where it took me. Mark, that was a more positive take on Facebook than <laughs> the one 541 you people who don't know you're dead. Yes. Yeah. I, I too would want to be careful of just being dismissive. What's very clear from all the so-called scientists of happiness um, when they look to see across the board if you can do it, what is it that seems to make people in different times, different cultures happy what comes out right at the top all the time uh, is relationships, family relationships uh, and relationships at work and with friends. And I think this is one way, uh, because technology has, has led that route, uh, this is one way that people are trying to relate and share ideas and facts about growing up and adolescence and all the pains and things that we might have done and, uh, in different ways when we didn't have have the computers in front of us. So I think there is, a, there is a goodness, a potential goodness in it, but of course the other side is that it, it can, I mean it's called a screen, and that's sometimes exactly what it can do. It can screen you off like a patient in a, in a little room. Uh, and relationships do need uh, encounter, it seems to me, not just letters, they need encounter, human encounter. Uh, and so I would say use it as part of your friendship, but for heaven's sake, put half an hour in your diary uh, and go and see somebody, have a coffee with them, talk to them, uh, and so on. Um, but I'm as bad as that, so I'm not going to have a go at any adolescent doing it. I, I think I need to put quarter of an hour in my daily diary just to phone friends and keep in touch. I caught myself uh, saying to my daughter the other day, why can't you watch more telly like normal kids? <laughs> um, 
so the technology has failed us, so we're going to have to go back to uh, a more tried and tested method of people bringing up questions. Um, I'm sorry about that. I don't quite know what happened. Um, perhaps I can um, plumb down a little bit of the other thing that you were both talking about and get you to speak a little bit more about... Um, uh, both of you in different ways talked about the pathologies of, of late capitalism and that um, there's a particular sense in which... Um, Capitalism, though both of you in different ways disavowed a, um, happiness indirectly, in, in I suppose you both wanted it indirectly. But nonetheless, that there's something about late capitalism that makes us more unhappy um, than we might have, than we have been before. Has that got something to do with community, or what's that got to do with, Susie? I think there's a lot of different levels. I think one is happiness has become a commodity. I think that's what both of us were saying, is that it's sold as a commodity, and it's sold as a, an outcome rather than a process, right? Um, so that's at one level. It's what, what we actually think constitutes happiness is what needs to be revisioned at this moment because the picture from consumer society or, or late capitalism is not one that we, I want to look at. Do I think that we were happy in the 50s? Well, I certainly wasn't happy in the 50s. I thought it was a terrible time to grow up. Absolutely bleak and bloody awful and class-bound and damp and shiny toilet paper and, you know, in other people's houses. My mother was a yank, so I didn't have that. Um, you know, nowhere to go and really difficult. So that it's, I don't want to eulogize about the immediate pre-60s generation. I mean, I'm part of the 60s, and I think we were very determined to do something to break down the stultifications and the forms of, of imprisonment. So I don't want to reify the part. I don't want, I mean, I don't want to say it was all wonderful. I think it was very, very difficult, actually. And I mean, maybe it does bring us back to recognition, because what happens when people get together now who don't know each other, and we did it, the three of us, okay, these fellas know each other very well, but I've never met either of them, is that we did what I call Jewish geography, but obviously wasn't Jewish geography because we're in a Christian setting. But we worked out who we knew and how we did it and what, the contact, what our networks of intellectual and friendship networks and literary networks were very, very fast because we wanted to do something to do with with attachment and with belonging and with being seen and with showing ourselves. So I think I want to put that into the mix of what I think is about happiness. And I also want to say that I'm quite happy at this moment. That's a very diff... I, I'm not with you quite, Mark, because I'm not prepared to give up the word. What I, what I want to give up is the schmaltz of the word. Um, because I actually think... I might have been very miserable for a, a, a cert or agonized about something at an earlier point in the day, but it doesn't preclude me from feeling really very much in the state of contentedness a bit later. Okay, I might be a little anxious that I'm not really answering your question, but it's, it's not disabling. It doesn't take away from feeling pretty happy to be here. So I don't want to dump the word. I, but, and I don't want, I don't, 
I don't even want to be as measured as just a good meal and not excess and not deprivation. I, I, I want something voluptuous and rich associated with the capacity for life and happiness. Um, and I think that is what's endangered by the commercialization of our society in the terms in which it is, in which every single moment is a potential moment for uh, turning yourself into a profit center or turning yourself into a consuming center. I mean, we are outside of that in this room, but that is what a lot of people's daily experience is. And so I do link it to what, what the human subject has become for the economic system that we live in. I agree, certainly, that um, <laughs> it's very tempting to think that uh, everybody was happier in times past, but uh, as somebody wise once said, uh, the thing about the golden age was that everybody moaned that things look rather yellow in it. So the golden age theory of happiness, I think, is, is false. Um, but if we're talking about late uh, capitalism, uh, materialism, I don't know, I, I think of Lady Macbeth when she said, you know, noughts had all spent where our desire is got without content so that you can keep desiring and desiring and getting and getting and the restlessness never goes. And it seems to me that uh, you don't have to do a huge amount of reflection to suddenly come to your senses about that and realize that actually perhaps you're reaching out for the wrong things. Um, Douglas Adams, um, in his Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, refers to the Research Institute, uh, I think it's called MISP-WOSO, which stood for um, the Mexi-Megalon Institute of Slowly and Painfully Working Out the Surprisingly Obvious. And it seems to me that uh, we've reached that position that, that uh, in, in late capitalism that uh, we've now uh, been pulled up short problem is, where now? What, do we, what are we looking for when we talk? If you're not going to dump the word, and I don't want to dump it, but if we're going to continue using it, what is it, I wonder if I may ask, Susie, because what is it that, that you are referring to when you use the word happiness? Well, I think this is going to sound too moralistic, so I don't mean it this way, but maybe I could start and then maybe we can help each other. When you have to confront something that's really quite difficult, when one has to, one comes to find resources within oneself, whether it's usually involved in reaching out, but you come to have an expanded experience of self. And you go from feeling, let's say, fury about a situation or devastation to a whole range of other kinds of things in order to come to terms with it. You have to, you have to develop. I mean, otherwise you shrink, don't you? Now, maybe that's too individualistic a notion, but there is something in the process of exploring difficulty or exploring extending something to do with self that seems to me to be about 
this incredible present that is called life. So that seems to me something to do with happiness. It's being able to reflect on an opinion that you have and think, gosh, I didn't used to think that a little while ago. I think this now, and there's more texture to this, and there's more of this, and there's more of that. That would might be about an idea. But at the same time, that's also true about an emotional tableau where you might have thought, nah, I really hate my mother, but no, actually, wait, there's this piece and that piece. And may, does, that does that relate to what Mark was talking about when he talked about God as the real, uh, which I thought was a very interesting idea. And so, I mean, almost you're saying that there becomes a block on how much you know, something terribly difficult happens. And you know, your challenge then to try and suck in more of the real in, in, is, as a way of seeing round about, um, seeing more three-dimensionally around the particular issues that you have. Is that, does that have some resonance with what Mark was talking about? Yeah, I just would come at it differently. Yeah, sure. I think so, because because my job is sitting with the people in the difficulty, I am forced to reflect all the time, help them to press the... I mean, it's what you said about the comma, really, is that this is part of the process of engagement of self. I mean, it sounds a little bit too ego and egocentric the way I'm talking about it, but there is something in seeing the comma as part of the process of, of engagement. I'm, I'm just repeating myself, so I'll shush. Can I just, before we move on from this, can I just push you both a little bit on a certain degree of piety, I, I, there's a part of, I felt you had, about material objects and happiness. Because uh, I I did notice a shoes reference in your, um, your piece, and um, I just got a leather jacket, which makes me incredibly happy. Um, I'd like to think it does. And, um, uh, it doesn't make I, us very happy. No, well, that's, that's right. I know I'm a superficial person, but that's just how it goes. No, but um, maybe, maybe it does make me happy, and it doesn't make Mark happy. Right. But, I mean, what I'm, so I suppose what I'm trying to say about all of this is that um, I actually think that, you know, we can be terribly pious about having things and so forth, but there are a number of objects that we own and things that we buy that do give us enormous amount of pleasure and happiness and so forth. That's right, isn't it? It's, we're in one of the most beautiful buildings in Britain. And I think we're here because of the beauty of it we, 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 and what it represents. And I've, I do think that what human beings create is absolutely glorious. But I have an awful lot of objects that, that I, I encounter on the street that I really have no need for. Sure. So, I do, I, I, again, I don't want to be um, prescriptive or negative about the creation of, of the leather jacket that gives you pleasure or the kettle that's beautifully designed or the chair that is gorgeous or the materials that have... I, th I think that's a wonderful aspect of life. And every culture creates things, doesn't it? There is, there is no culture that doesn't create beads or... I mean, it's a bit like they create forms of worship and they create forms of song. They also create objets, which have meaning. So I, I don't think we want to do away with objets. Part of my job here will be to work out how we display the objects that St. Paul's owns. 
And it strikes me as I've been thinking about that, that if you take an object, there are lots of stories that that object has. Um, there's the story that the owner of the object has, the, the story of the person who made it, um, the story of the person who's now looking at it, and so on. So an object in itself has many different aspects and different attachment meanings to it. It seems to me that, yes, objects are important to us because they are invested with our stories. I can be given something very cheap by a person I love, but it suddenly becomes the most precious thing I own. What I'm worried about is when people simply go and buy objects, accumulate stuff, because an anonymous authority, which is usually being transmitted through adverts or through your neighbour, what your neighbour's got, when that voice is coming through loud and clear that you're a bit of a shadow if you haven't got it. That, I think, is damaging. Right. So I'm not trying to devalue objects. <laughs> I'm just trying to say that um, uh, there, there needs to be a, a strength uh, to, to stand up against um, comparing yourself with the Joneses all the time. See, I think part of the difficulty, and maybe I was trying to hint at this, is, and I, I think I, we can't see you at all because of the way the lighting is. I want to say put the house lights up, but then I realise we're not in a theatre. Um, so I'm sorry, I'm don't, don't, I, I have no idea what age group I'm talking to or with. Um, but for the... And I don't really want to sound like this old lady, but for a lot of younger people, I think they really are invited to consider themselves as objects of consumption and for consuming and they really are invited to turn themselves into objects and it is really very very problematic and we were very far along from simply overconsumption. we are now what kind of human being am I going to invent myself to be and that seems to me a really troublesome kind of ideology that goes with late capitalism because it's the notion of invention not expansion or struggle, but I can be this kind of person. I mean, I can have this kind of body and this kind of personality and this... And I think there is something there about one's own relation to self as an object that is really problematic, as problematic as, the, as what Mark was saying, is you don't know whether he's got the, the lover or whether he's got the car. I mean, you don't really know what has become the object in that situation. There's a lot of people... Um there's a lot of people that have talked about unhappiness in terms of comparing yourself to others, haven't they? And that the, the, um, the happy person is the person who, who doesn't really compare themselves to others very much, and the unhappy person is constantly looking to, to others and feeling jealous of how much they've got, and there's, there's quite a lot of stuff written about that sort of stuff. But I think that another way of looking at that is that what they see on the, in the other is a really useful signpost to their own longing that they cannot quite um, manifest for themselves. So it may not be that what they do is envy the thing that the other has. It may not be the car or the child or the whatever, but what it is is their imagination that the other feels 
content in and of themselves and is able to authorize themselves and feel sufficiently entitled to, to do things for themselves. Does that make any sense? Um, lots of questions I'm getting. I'm going to slightly change tack, if, if I may. Lots of questions Mark, um, about the word joy. Because um, uh, a lot of people seem to be wanting to say that joy is a richer uh, alternative word that doesn't suffer the sorts of problems that we've been talking about with happiness. Do you agree with that? Yes, I'm, I'm happier with the word joy, strangely. Um, I don't know why, really. Uh, I think I'm a melancholic sort of soul, really, I think. But joy sounds to me... Happiness, I came to conclude, is really the state I'm in when I'm not unhappy. Right, that's what I think I concluded about that. So, on the whole, am I happy now? Well, moderately. I'm not unhappy. Nice people. and I've got a platform. And, you know, I'm in St. Paul's. Have I got joy? No. No, I haven't. But I do know when I have, and I usually know why. Um, and that, for me, is more easy to identify the source of the ingredients of. And the problem with happiness for me is, you know, it seems to be, you know, if it's, if it's not permanent but occasional, if it's, if it's covering a whole wide range of experiences, um, perhaps it's just pointless trying to pin it down and sum it up when it, it just can't be. But joy, I think, I, I, yes, I think I would I'd be in, interested in pursuing that. Does that word work at all for you? Not really. No. Uh, I, I think I've got a terrible stereotype view of people all singing together as, um, as a moment of joy, a great joy. But um, I think it's too in the ecstatic range for me. And that's probably not how it was meant by whoever, or however many of you suggested it. I... I, um, I, let's go to an airport. Yes. Okay. Who's happy in an airport? Don't know. Who's got joy? That person who's just seen the lover come through the door that they haven't seen. That, to me, is joy. Where's the anxiety? <laughs> well, the other thing about airports, of course, <coughs> just to back up my contemplation point, is that actually... <laughs> Waiting rooms today are really quite important on lots of levels. People sit and don't do anything, and they don't do that very often. So airports for me are very important. Not only can you see joy occasionally, uh, but actually a bit like a hospital waiting room or hairdressers maybe if the person's not talking to you, people are sort of contemplating, not doing much, sitting down, thinking through whatever. Um, so I have a high doctrine of airports. They're very important places. Isn't there a very schmaltzy the film new cathedrals. Begins, there's a very schmaltzy film that begins with all of that, that observation, isn't there? By, um... Probably. Oh, what's his name? Someone will know out there. Um, okay, lots of other questions here. We've got tons of questions. Um, can a parent teach a child how to be happy? Seems an impossibly difficult question to me as a parent, but... You're not a parent, so do you have any wisdom for those of us who are and don't know the answer to the question? 
Um, only to sort of reiterate, I think, what I've been trying to say is that I would want any child of mine to uh, be encouraged to be shown in my own example how to be open to discovery and the new. Um, and, um, and to learn uh, the benefits of, of honesty and be schooled in relationship. Uh, that sounds very formal, schooled in relationship. I think the school of relationship is, you know, that, that uh, network at home, if it's working well. Um, but that, that openness to, um, to the new and to know that it's all right to be imperfect. That's what I would want all of us here to know. Um, that if, if you're ever going to get happiness from anywhere, you, the first thing you've got to learn is that it's all right to be imperfect. Yes. So um, any child of mine, I'd want them to know that too. But no, I'm, everybody out there with children is desperately waiting to hear how you've done it. Um. <laughs> I suppose... If you have a good early experience, you are going to come at life feeling that experience is possible. So if you remember that ad, Start Right, for shoes, for children? Start Right was kind of about you start right and it goes on being manageable. Start wrong and you have a much greater burden and that's where you come back to the hap and the luck you were talking about. So I don't think it's a question of educating children. It's a question of what kind of environment do children imbibe in the making of themselves? What kind of relationships are they offered that then becomes the substance of who they are? And children children turn us into parents. I mean, we don't become, we're not parents before we have children. We don't know how to do it. So we only learn on the job. So we usually do a slightly better job on number two than we do on number one, for many of us, I think, um, in terms of being able to offer something that is at the right level for that child. And when, you know, we're probably not too distant and not too on top of that child. But I think how we treat our children marks them in the most profound ways, emotionally and psychically, and offers them possibilities for their lives. So I don't know that I would call it happiness or not happiness. I would call it whether they have enough to be getting on with the, the possibility of being curious in life. Can, can I just push this one in relation to a couple of words that are coming up here? Oh, trust in particular and whether trust is an important part of happiness. And something you just said has sparked off in, uh, in me a memory of a lecture that I went to a couple of years ago uh, when, uh, and it was about health and safety, is actually what it was about. Uh, and um, I'm living the dream, aren't I, I really am, and going to those sorts of lectures. And, um, uh, and the person um, very brilliantly uh, asked uh, the audience to remember uh, when they were a child where they were happiest. So if you, if you did this experiment now, where, where in your child you were happiest? And then he asks the audience um, to put out their hand 
if it was outside that place. And the vast majority, people put up their hands, and it was out of the view of adults, and the vast majority have put up their hands. And he said, it's very interesting, that's because you're an older audience. He said, if you ask a much younger audience where you were happy when you were a child, they will say, much, the percentages are completely different inside and under the gaze of adults, and the place you remember playing and being happy. And that he was illustrating the way in which we are so afraid and the way we manage our children through our fear that we've, as it were, brought them in under our gaze and indoors and we don't let them be free and all that sort of stuff. Is that, is that related in any way, that sort of fear and the fear of strangers and all that sort of stuff related to uh, the way we're schooled in uh, something that may lead or not to happiness? Mark, what do you think? Can you focus the question in a bit, just so you uh, I know exactly? Are, are we, have, we, have we become so... Um, is fear something um, about, about the world in which we live? Yeah. Uh, particularly when you have children and you're, you're, you know, you're very fearful of what they might be getting up to and so forth like that, that you, you can limit them and... And that... And I, I suppose I have a sense that happy relates to free in some way and that our fearfulness is limiting and and stultifying and that there's some equation between these ideas when i was once taught um uh, by colin gunton at um, king's college london who um had a high doctrine of uh, paradox and so much so that um we always used to joke um that his theology was for all your doctrinal headaches, take paradox. Um, uh, but this is a bit of a paradox, I think, that in order to be free, you need your boundaries. Um, Thomas Merton, when he, he writes in his autobiography, was shown to his cell as a monk, and uh, the door was closed. He said, and so I entered the four walls of my freedom. And it seems to me that in order, this is a paradox, in order to, to be able to enjoy the, the pasture, you need to know where the fences are. And uh, I, I don't know, but I would guess that part of the, the pleasure and exhaustion of a parent is trying to help a child understand that. It's also, of course, something um, those of us who have autumnal adolescence in life we're continually coming across later in life as well is freedom is not just being on the rampage emotionally or in any other way uh, it is about um, about seeing the boundaries um, how you pass that on to a child I think must be very difficult I think the way that the fear gets in to try and address your question is that it can destabilize the parent feeling of just wanting to look after the kid. It, you can start to distrust what, what you feel safe about. And you can have a conflict between two parents about what's safe and not, what's not safe. So I agree with Mark and the capacity to, for children to feel safe 
and free comes out of having boundaries. And kids who don't have boundaries are the kids who are asking for boundaries. I mean, that, I, do, I do think that paradox is quite clear. And they're very relieved. And when they say to you, yeah, but everybody else is allowed to come home at three at, when they're 12. And everybody else has had an iPhone for five years. And everybody else, yeah, but not in our house. They are desperately relieved. But it is very hard for parents to do that because there's both the fear of Am I overprotecting? Am I protecting? Am I being part of the community? Am I being too uptight? I don't, I say, I, so that's one kind of thing. I think another thing that really upsets me is that the paranoia, the quite natural paranoia that parents have or the culture has about the over-eroticization or over-sexualization, because I don't think it's erotic of life, um, and the fears of pedophilia, all of which really we need to be vigilant about, mean that teachers in primary schools can have prohibitions about doing the normal sort of cuddle and caring for a child in case it's misconstrued. I'm sure that comes under health and safety. So I think we are in difficulty because our political system encourages fear. In fact, I think we could say the North American system runs on fear and we're getting a little taste of it here and I think it infuses aspects of our capacity to be thoughtful and therefore makes the whole issue of the potential safety far more contaminated with nonsense and conflict and therefore has an impact on the child's capacity to be free and happy if we want to use those words. Can I, can I move us on? There's, there's various different things that are coming through. One of them is about um, uh, religion and, and happiness and uh, the way in which the church might contribute and has contributed to uh, many people's unhappiness in, in a whole load of ways. Um, there's a particular question that associates that with Puritanism here and about the flesh and about the appetites and so forth. Mark, I'm sure... I'm sure you've got a lot to say about that. <laughs> um, one of the lasting memories that I have of, of being asked to talk somewhere was to a group that uh, Dave Tomlinson used to run at the top of a pub um, in South London. Uh, about 40 or so people used to go, and they were all people who bore the scars of church going in, in one way or another uh, and, and yet didn't want to give up on the enterprise. They, they were, you know, the, the, the magnetism of, of, of mystery um, was still there. They wanted to share and talk about common concerns about ethics and, and Christian faith and so on, but they were too angry, too hurt in lots of different ways and, and I must say those 40 people have always stayed with me the quality of that distilled conversation and um, I just wish you know every church was full of people like that what I came away with was do not ever be flippant about the dangers of religion because um, I sometimes wonder whether that's why the Anglican church when it is being mild <laughs> and a little bit laid back, actually is onto something. We know the dangers of the opposite. 
and um, uh, I wouldn't want us to be too apologetic about our generosity and our breadth and so on because we need again the, the room to manoeuvre. Um, I think at the moment uh, the hurt and pain that religion uh, or religious institutions are uh, clearly being seen to have been part of, particularly of course in, in these dreadful uh, paedophilia cases that are emerging day by day, uh, is, well, I go speechless. I mean, uh, and we cannot forget it. I mean, just because I'm not a Roman Catholic, you know, it, that's not it. I mean, I, I, I am speechless at the horrors of, of what's gone on in Christ's name. <laughs> um, but then that's not the whole story, and we move, you know, on, and we try and, you know, change more full stops into commas to use that, what I think is what pastoral care is about or psychotherapy is about. Um, but yes, religious, religion is, is very dangerous and, um, and uh, we can't forget that. Do you see a lot of people in your line of work who've been messed up by religion? Well, yes and no. <laughs> I think religion is... I mean, the organised church is an expression... It, it's, it's a cultural practice. And so the Puritanism that somebody was referring to is goes right went right across the culture. So it's not so there's the specific um, crimes or affronts of the or the hurts that organized religion may have done, but it's also enters the culture at a much wider level. Um, and I think it's more poignant, it's more enraging, it's more, it's more criminal when you see something that, that is not being addressed, which now has come to light. And it's re it really isn't being addressed. That is really not okay. I mean, the, the, you know, I, I, I do think Jeffrey Robinson is on, Robinson is on to something. That they're, they're, this is a real violation. But... Um, I don't think it's the only thing that I've seen with religion. I think religion can also provide a very helpful boundary, a source of containment and community for people. So I'm being very agnostic on it. Okay, there's another really interesting thing to skip about here because there's lots of interesting questions coming up. Um, and um, Suzy, you slightly um, called this on yourself a, a half an hour or so ago, but I think I'd quite like to... to, to um, uh, to hear you talk about it more fully. Because what this person has, I think, rightly observed is that we're all talking about happiness as an individual experience here. And that, um, to that extent, you may want to say that it's actually a function of the, um, the way we've described it, as, of the very thing we're condemning in all, you know, the individualistic culture and late capitalism and all that sort of stuff. And yet we're talking about it in just that sort of way. Yeah, I think that's a real conundrum. We don't have a way of talking about the thing that we want to be talking about. With, I mean, I think we all understand that it's intersubjective, that how we impact and can do things together and the, the you that's inside of me and the internal conversations that come from the community of people that I value and hopefully value me and respect means that 
my my words are the individual words, but they're a production coming out of a whole set of social relationships, and so is happiness. But we don't talk about it in those terms. I, yeah, I was in bliss today because I had my two best friends with me, and that is quite rare to take off a few hours and spend the kind of time and I suppose I would use joy actually where the kind the kind of understanding that we have developed over nearly 40 years is extraordinary and so the continuities of attachment, the challenges we've put to each other, because um, we're not the kind of best friends that are all, yes, dear. We're like, wait, wait, what did you do in that situation when we're moaning about something? Um, so to me, my happiness is, if I'm going to use that word, really does come from my life being saved, if you like, by the generation that I was a part of and what we made of our friendships and what we wanted to do in that and what we made of our political endeavors, however appallingly we've failed at this particular moment. So I don't think I want to abstract happiness from something very profoundly to do with attachments, dependencies, and community, and communities of interest. Happiness is social. I find that a, a really helpful clarifying question, because I think that's also at the heart of a lot of my unease about the way we can use happiness individually. Um, and, and rather sort of um, in a very sort of flimsy way. So, you know, I like sitting at the top at the front of a double-decker bus. I always try and get that seat. And if I do, I'm happy. But somebody is, who didn't get it before me is now unhappy. And, and we could see things, you know, talk about happy uh, in that sort of individualistic way, you know, really um there's no point doing it it's just it's just it's just so um flimsy and nonsense for the christian i suppose um happiness uh, if it's going to be used needs to be seen in terms of the common good and in community and in in social relationship um and uh Yes, I think that's a, it's a very clarifying question for me that the individualism um, of the way we talk about happiness. Um but, I mean, it's both, isn't it? Because here's the problem. Paradox. You, or the paradox. Or is that if I have... If I have... An ice, if I'm in sorrow about something that I need to communicate about... And I'm able to, or my friend is, the one is no longer in isolation around it. And therefore, it's bearable. And it has a different taste. It's completely changed. The experience is changed, right? Just as doing something silly or have fun, like watching a movie might be enriched by having that experience with somebody else. But I'm still having the experience, even though it's being enhanced by being within a relationship or within a community. So I don't want to leave out the individual, but I want to say that the individual is the ensemble of social relations, really, because what else are we if we're not the results of our own agency and subjectivity in relation to your subjectivity and agency? 
So it's only, it's only an individual experience because it's a shared experience. Well, ultimately, yes. But it's that, got to be distilled that's, that's into... That's quite theological for us. Okay, but that's why, that's why I listen to you guys. Yeah. <laughs> when, Wallace, when Wallace Stevens say, play, you must attune beyond us, yet ourselves, yes. that's exactly the whole exactly, balance, yes. isn't there? That has to be exactly. at the two. Yeah. I, I think I've got one last question before um, um, I'm going to invite you both to sort of if, uh, having any sort of summing up or what you might have learnt and so forth. And... Um, I think f f we've touched a little bit on this, but f for many people, when they, when they strive after this thing called, they called happiness, often it's, that they're, uh, it's actually about not being desperately unhappy. That that's, the, that's the thing that's really uh, exercising this drive. And I wondered, I, I particularly want to ask you whether um, it's true that unhappiness all looks different, or whether... Um, I expect you to see people, you know, every day, uh, who many of whom may think of themselves as unhappy or have all sorts of issues that need to address in that regard, and whether there are sort of common themes of unhappiness um, that, that, that you experience in your work. I have such a good question because what you're doing in therapy is helping people to live inside of their lives right rather than outside of their lives by being with them in the process of them discovering their life for themselves so that's the general theme you're absolutely right and the difficulties are that people have come to understand the difficulties or the disappointments or the hurts or the slights or the incapacity to move or whatever it is as incomprehensible to themselves. And the common theme out of that is that people have different ways of dealing with it. They either think it's their fault that if it wasn't for me, my parents wouldn't have divorced. In other words, the child is so powerless that it turns itself into the site of power because powerlessness is so painful and thinks that they could have fixed everything, right? right? So at that level, that's one kind of story. But in order to... F and then there might be another version of it where it's they're completely useless and it, they have no power. I, I'm giving you two extremes of different defense structures, if you like. But to be of any use as a psychotherapist or psychoanalyst, it is the particulars that actually matter. And it's the particulars of do they dare risk repositioning their relationship to themselves so that they can risk something going all right. I mean, the difficulty for, in therapy isn't things going wrong for people. It's when things start to be experienced as going right. So I think there are overall generalities which relate to being misseen, misheard, misrecognized continually enough so that you don't feel you're entitled. So you either act super entitled or you act totally unentitled. So those generalities, but this, in order to help somebody, you've got to be into the specifics. Does that make any sense? No, no it does.
I don't know, I mean, in pastoral care, and we see people all the time in different sorts of ways, so um, other common threads that you'd pick up, Mark, with what unhappiness looks like? Um, well, of course, there's the, the external things that, that injure people and create anxieties. So, and, you know, there's the, the obvious um, things like, um, you know, family or, uh, troubles or financial worries, um, work. Um, you know, unemployment and so on, a purpose to get up in the morning. So you've got those external things, and then you've got the internal things. This is what I mean about first impressions. I think that a psychotherapist and a priest must always have doubts about people's first impressions and your own. Um, and so, you know, to dig a bit deeper, you're, you're quite often discovering, you know, the, the deep hurts of maybe the, 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 the family relationship or a uh, a partnership problem uh, or self um, lo very low self-esteem I think there's a lot of that in churches actually uh, you encounter a lot of self-doubt um, and uh, guilt quite often um, which often of course comes out uh, in exactly the opposite <laughs> so you get lots of sort of bulldog parishioners who you know behave and clergy by the way who, who um, um, sort of dance around the place as if you know and actually beneath it all there is there is quite a tender human being who's um, full of doubt about themselves and I think these themes make and break churches but it's very difficult to to try and put your finger on the chemistry um, because how do you talk about these things outside of the therapist's room or outside of the vestry? <laughs> Which you're not probably going to do in the vestry, actually. Um, I have a, an enormous high regard for psychotherapy and I think most clergy ought to be doing it because we are dealing with people's bruises so often. Um, but we're also dealing with our own bruises. And, and the painful thing is that hurt people hurt people and in churches there are a lot of hurt people so the potential for people to get even more hurt is enormous and I think we need to be as pastors very very doubly aware of that before I um, invite our two contributors to sort of say a, a, a closing remark or two I'd just like to um, thank all of you for coming. And um, I think I'd particularly like to thank those of you who've come for all four of the sessions. Um, I feel privileged to have sat in on all four of them. They've been absolutely brilliant as far as I'm concerned. Thank you for coming. And uh, I'd particularly like to thank Elizabeth Foy for the work that she's done in um, setting all this up. After, um, after this event, uh, immediately after, uh, two contributors will be uh, signing books at the back. I hope they'll be signing books at the back and there are books there to sign. I expect there will be. Would they be our own books? You know that you can sign whatever you like, but I think that your books will be there too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mark. Uh, well, I was trying to uh, think about what 
sage-like wisdom I could pass on to you as to how to be happy to send you on your way. And I was wondering about, you know, telling you, never mind children, but telling you that it's all right, enjoy being imperfect. Uh, and I thought, well, how am I going to convince them that actually it's the mistakes that let the light in? And, um, and I thought of Quentin Crisp's comment that um, if at first you don't succeed, failure may be your style. Um, <laughs> but what I want to pass on instead is I want to leave you with the wisdom of a very old man who was interviewed at the Glastonbury Festival recently, and he was asked about happiness. I'll tell you the secret of happiness, he said to the interviewer. I found it written on a bottle of bleach. The interviewer reached for his pen with the mouth open and poised, and the old man whispered, stand upright in a cool place. <laughs> I think that's pretty good advice on how to be happy, actually. And it's found on a bottle of bleach. <laughs> Susie. Well, now that we've had this encounter together for 90 minutes, I suppose I want to move away from the whole notion of the individual because that's kind of where we started and I thinking back about how collective groups are just absolutely fantastic transformers of experience whether it's an energetic classroom or a reading group or a, in my day the women's liberation and feminism challenging um, the way in which society and we ourselves saw ourselves. So I think that alongside the um, <coughs> argument I've given about understanding the individual in their particulars, I also want to say there's nothing as powerful as change with other people. Um, and I suppose that's another one of you, what you guys call paradoxes, is it? Is that they, you need both. And that I'm moved by this experience. I'm very, I'm very pleased to notice the limited ways in which I was thinking about this for the, for the time that I was talking and the chance to talk with you. And I hope other people are, because this is also a group experience. But I'm also experiencing it individually. And so I have, a certain, I have some pleasure of trying to think my way through this topic without being a total curmudgeon. And I hope that's been pleasurable for you too. So thank you. Very good. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Oakley and Susie Orbach. Thank you ever so much. Thank you ever so much. Thank you. Mate, first class. First class.